how do you grow like a VC-backed company without taking on investors? Do you want to create a lifestyle business, a performance business, or an empire? How do you scale to an exit without losing your freedom? Those are the questions, and this show is the answer. Welcome, everybody, to the Scale Up Show. This is your host, Ryan Staley, and I have a very, very special guest with me today. I have Richard Owen. Richard is the is it basically a two-time CEO and a first-time founder. He's the CEO of OCX Cognition, a software and data science company using machine learning to create real-time MPS and customer health performance. Absolutely amazing. And in his previous experience, he ran the world's largest e-commerce platform. He was head of e-commerce at Dell in 98. And on top of it, built business more than $500 million in Japan, uh, has built two software companies and one to an IPO on NASDAQ. So Richard, really, really colorful background that you have. Happy to have you on the show, man. Thanks, Ryan. It's nice to be here. I think it just says I'm old, uh, but, <laughs> but I'll appreciate the, uh, the colorful. I like that. You're not old. You're wise, right? You're wise. wise. Thank you. I'll stick with that. I'll take that. You got a good baseball card too, like with stats. So you got that going for you. So, um, so, so anyways, let's do a quick revenue rundown so everybody understands where you're at in the journey now. Obviously, they know high level where you're at before. So where is OCX in terms of ARR? So we're converging on our first million. So that's our sort of next milestone. We launched the product just about seven or eight months ago, and uh, we're a uh, you know, large scale ARR type business. So we're not we're not selling a high volume of transactions. We're selling large tickets to enterprises. Um, but uh, yeah, our first milestones to to get over the a million mark, which we're very close to. And uh, you know, then obviously we want to try and find ways to get uh, to get to the next level, which will which will be, uh, I think, a lot more aggressive, as you can imagine. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. It was it's funny. I was interviewing another founder. Said it took him 10 years to get to 10 million. He was bootstrapped. Then it took him six years to get to 60 million. And then it took him 18 months to get from 60 million to 100 million. So, anyways. Well, you know, you know it's interesting when you talk about growth dynamics. Um, you know, there's a narrative, right, that exists out in the venture universe that says every company founds and then six months later, they're, they're somehow incredibly uh, successful. It's actually very rare. And for most of us, it's, it's a challenge to sustain growth over any length of time. And so, you know, I think that we're, we're going to have to fight for every yard like everybody else. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, to, to go to a million after seven or eight months is absolutely amazing. So I'll give you tons of credit for that. And we're definitely going to dig into that. So what's your go-to-market motion that made that happen? Well, so we, we have an advantage in the sense that we've been in this industry a long time. So my prior company, Satmetrics, um, sold a sort of pre- prior generation in some ways of technology for this space. It was very much based on survey data sets, looking at the attitudes of customers and measuring things like MPS, which we were in part responsible for creating. Uh, and so that gave me a pretty, pretty good sort of base of industry contacts and people who we'd really done business with in the past that we could sort of go to and say, okay, we're, we're back, but with the next generation of product and technology. And that, that, that's a helpful place to sort of get your first handful of high-risk customers. And then, of course, you naturally exhaust that. You start to move on to how do we become more systematic in generating, uh, in generating opportunity. Yeah, that's – are you using uh, – I know you said you're, you're going after big customers. 
is it founder-led sales right now, I assume? Or do yes. you have a team? Okay. Yeah, so very much. So founder-led and then are you... So basically, you are you have a sales motion then, correct? To primary leveraging... You could, call it, you could call it that. <laughs> uh, <laughs> okay, cool. Uh, and so then you, can you walk through, and I know you alluded to it real quick, but just the solution in terms of what exactly it does and the problem you solve. Yeah. Well, so, I mean, most of your audience are in recurring revenue businesses, right? Right. So they understand net revenue retention, and that's probably the biggest single indicator of growth. And it's, it's it's a headache for companies, right? We're always trying to figure out how do we create net revenue retention? Well, what we know with a fair degree of certainty is that customers ultimately renew as a product of the experiences they've had with the company Mm -hmm. relative to their expectations associated with that, right? So what every CEO of a company wants to understand is what essentially is my true condition of my customer base. And typically, if you look back at what companies were doing in previous generations of companies I've run, you did one of two things. You asked your team, you said, how are we doing with these guys? And they said, oh, we're doing great, boss. Or you basically surveyed customers, and they may not respond. Most typically didn't. Or they'd respond once a year, and so the data was very obsolete. And so you had this extremely murky view of where you really were with your customers. So what we set out to do was said, well, is it possible to, with a high degree of accuracy, predict exactly where you stand with your customers on any given day? And what we rely on is the fact that Customers behave to a fair degree rationally based on certain patterns of experience they have. And and so we use machine learning to essentially predict that performance. Now, we turn that into familiar metrics, net promoter score, levels of satisfaction, sort of operational KPIs, even likelihood for a contract renewal. Uh, But at the end of the day, we're based on a fundamental assumption that customers are responding to their experiences logically. That combined with uh, your employees' input give you a very perfect or an ideal view of where you stand with customers and give you an early warning indicator if you have problems. So we're really bringing a lot of data science to a problem that's been handled in a very sort of anecdotal and guesswork type way. Hmm. That's awesome. All right. We're definitely going to dig into that later. So love that. I can see a huge need for it because like I told you, I think when we're, we're doing the show prep, um, I've been in, in sales and, and had those discussions where it's like, hey, where, you know, how's this customer doing? What's the rating? All that. And it's not always totally accurate. Companies use that I, that I work with use surveys all the time. And so there's definitely room for innovation there. So, so how large is your team? So we're about uh, 25 people or so now. Okay. Wow. Big team for, for just starting off. Uh, and then are you bootstrapped or funded? So both. So we bootstrapped for uh, about a year or so. And then we received our first seed capital about a year ago. Actually, last July. Okay. So, so basically, it sounds like then based on those timelines, you were building the product for a little over a year. And then, you know, once you launched that, then you got your 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 closing in on a million. We, we, actually, we actually co-developed the product with our earliest customers. So oh. we did things a little differently. We went off and found customers who wanted to work with us on the product. And, and that, you know, not very traditional Silicon Valley, you know, where you typically start with an engineering team and you go off and build things and then you reveal them to the world and hope people like it. 
we we had our first few customers lined up and working with us before we started cutting code. And the p- reason for that was that when, when you're in complex data science problems, unless you really have real customer data, everything you're developing is theoretical. And what you quickly find is that the, the reality of how companies have access to data, the limitations they have, totally change the way you approach solving the problem. So, so we did, we, when I say we did bootstrapping and seed, we really built the product with some early customers, which gave us some early path to revenue. Um, and, and then we raised minimal seeds. So we're not a big venture capital consumer, largely because we're trying to avoid being a big venture capital consumer. Okay, so this is awesome because you're the first person on the show that's talked about doing it this way. So we're definitely going to dig into this. So walk me through step-by-step step how you made that a reality then. And I know that's been talked about as leverage, leverage your clients as capital. And I think that's a very clever and innovative way to do that. So you're not not giving away so much equity on, at, at the beginning, um, especially if you know the market size. So how did you do that? How did you make that a reality? How many did you line up? And can you just walk right. through that? Right. So so it, it, it didn't go smoothly. Uh, <laughs> you know, I think we can all be intellectually honest, right? I think the first, the first uh, you know, couple of customers that we started working on, we basically treated it as an initially a service project. So we said, well, we'll solve the data science work as a service project with you, because we don't have a tech stack built yet, and we'll test our theories of data science and data modeling. And we worked with companies that we'd known from previous lives, so we had a relationship with, and they bought into our vision. Um, And we created value for them, but not necessarily in the way we would have set out to. So we discovered a lot of things that were wrong about our theories, made a lot of mistakes. At the end of the day, they were happy with what they got, but it wasn't necessarily the foundation for what we wanted to build a company around. So we had to rethink our approach and try it again with those early life customers with different data sets and different approaches. Um, so they were very much in the business of, of collaborating with us on that. Um, and, I, and I think that, you know, what I'd say to anyone who's contemplating that is, uh, you know, if a customer's not willing to engage with you uh, around that, then they're not really that keen. They'll see that higher level of value in the solution because if you really are, if you've got a really valuable solution, they'll work with you on it. And there are some companies that I think are very much by nature early adopters, and those are the ones you're trying to find. Um, believe me, Ryan, I mean, we talked to an awful lot of people I'd done business with for a decade who just flat told me, not a chance, right? And also, you know, people who said, that's terrifying. You know, we like the old <laughs> way of doing things. So, one of the things to bear in mind is you are looking for those early adopters and you got to be quite ready to accept the people who don't think that way aren't going to be interested in, in, in a new and improved approach. I love how candid you are. And you're like, yeah, so basically we got what I heard you say and tell me if I'm wrong. We, we went with more of a services approach. We got them the result, but we're like, this is not what we want to build our company around. So then did you do a, is that accurate? Is that how I understand like the real sick? Okay. I think we had to completely readjust our approach to data science and got it right to the second time round, or at least got it right enough. I mean, I'd argue that we're still, we're still working it. Right. You know, I think that, you know, we're, we're now in a stage where I think we're probably 70 to 80% of the data science really locked in. But every new customer we take on, 
we're learning something that helps us improve our fundamental algorithms. Um, and, and the advantage of that, honestly, is that the, you, know, you, you have two big costs in a business when you're starting. One is engineering costs. <clears throat> and if you think about it, your really big cost in engineering is building things that aren't useful. Building things that customers won't buy is your big engineering cost. And then you have your sales and marketing cost. And if you rush too fast into going to market uh, or investing, I should say, over-investing in sales and marketing, you're either going to attract the wrong type of buyer, in which case you're going to end up in a mess, or you're going to be very ineffective because you're just not ready for that, uh, ready for that hit. Um, now, as you know, and probably some of your audience understands, if, if you're the kind of person who goes out and raises $20 million on a PowerPoint slide from venture capitalists, you're essentially just making a big swing for the fences, bet that you're right on that PowerPoint slide, and, and somehow you got it all right first time. Uh, and that has a pretty high failure ratio, um, and which works for VCs because you know, they're making 50 bets, and if one of them works, that, that's fine. You know, it doesn't work quite as well for the entrepreneur because at the end of the day, the entrepreneur is making one bet yeah. and committing three, four, five years of their life to it. So I was looking for better odds. Yeah, I, I've never heard it explained that way. And like, there's been, and I, I looked at the data behind this because I had the same hypothesis from like, eh, like people are buying a lottery ticket, right? And I looked at it and I think when you, when you look at the stats, I think 93% of companies that get their series A don't get a series B. So like, that's, that tells you the level of drop off. <laughs> There, there is a there is a somewhere between around two million of ARR and nine million ARR. There is about a 95 percent failure rate, and that probably correlates to those rounds. Um, and that's a that's a function of the fact that the company takes capital on the presumption it can scale itself, and discovers it can't. And that could be because the work hadn't been done to really create a solid foundation for growth. Um, by the time the capital gets poured on it, right? And, you know, you like, love the metaphor of, okay, you've got a fire burning, let's pour fuel on it. But if what you're pouring fuel on, if you're basically pouring fuel onto something that's a smoldering, you know, <laughs> non-fire, you just end up very soggy, right? And, I, you know, and, and, and look, it makes perfect sense. I mean, I'm, I'm an investor as well. If, if you put 10 million into a company, that's 1 million ARR, you, you have a business model that says they're going to get to 10 million. So they then have to go, you know, gas pedal down to do it. Um, and at that point, they're now into a territory where they've made mistakes early on. If the model isn't clear, if go to market's not a fit, if you don't know who your target buyer is or your product's not going to deliver at scale, all those things catch up with you and it becomes near impossible uh, to make that scaling. Yeah, you said it way more eloquently than I was going to. I was going to say basically you're scaling shit if you do, if you do, you know. So that was about the summary. The, I like your summary. This I want well, pretty direct, right? You know, so it was a little more direct, but yours yours sounded a lot nicer. You know, it's good for the younger audience that listens. Oh, the Englishman in me, I'm, I'm trying to be diplomatic. <laughs> so proper, so proper. So but that I love that analogy, and that's I didn't realize that. There's a 90% failure rate from that 2 million AR to 9 million AR. I didn't know that at all. So I suspected based on the funding numbers, but I didn't know it was that high with that revenue range. You would think 
most of it's, I, I would think, sub 1 million. So it surprises Well, there's a very high failure rate sub 1 million as well. Um, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a risk-orientated business. Um, but I think that as entrepreneurs, we're about risk mitigation to some degree, right? We're, we're, trying to, we're trying to embrace the right kind of risk. We know we're in a risk business. And it's romanticized in our society, and that's a good thing, right? We, one of the things that makes America an amazing country is that there's so many people willing to both put capital at risk and put labor at risk. And I think it's kind of unique. I, I honestly, you know, speaking as an American and a British guy, I'd say we, we really do have something going for us in this regard. But, um, but, you know, that translates into some pretty grim stats. And so we're trying to figure out always how do we, how do we beat the odds? So what's your number one recommendation for beating the odds of a 90% failure rate for sub $10 million companies in the tech space? Well, that's, I'm glad you asked that question. So I'll, I'll, I'll make it really simple. And um, I think that at the end of the day, what we all need to understand is that creating value for customers, intrinsic value for customers is a massive growth accelerant for companies. Failing to do that is a huge break on the ability of the company to, to, to scale and grow. Because you've really got two ways of growing a company. To some extent, you can grow it because you are delivering original and high value to your customers, and they are therefore your best marketing asset you're ever going to have. They are also you know, a natural word of mouth generator, and they're your best collaborators on what you should build and how you should build your company. Or you can do it on the basis of throwing tons of money at it and trying to get top of the funnel. And what most companies discover is that top of the funnel investments, if you're not essentially getting um, growth at the back end from existing customers, is a very, very inefficient, uh, very inefficient way of doing things. And let, let me give you an anecdote, Ryan, because a few years back when my prior investors, um, Sutter Hill Ventures, had passed on something to me which I thought was fascinating. They were talking about a company that they bootstrapped called Snowflake, which then became very well known to everyone. Mm -hmm. And they literally started it in their offices. And I remember they said, you know, what's interesting about Snowflake is it has an over 200% net revenue retention. I was like, what? 200%? So they double the business every year without acquiring a single new logo. Now, that kind of economic performance is massively sustainable and indicates at its heart that customers are consuming the product, loving it, they want more of it, and probably going out and telling everybody they know, by the way, this is a transformative product. My firm belief is if you have that as a foundation for your company, I think rule number one, you are going to be uh, in a good place to scale your business. I think the second observation I'd make is that, and I think I, I mentioned this to you, you kind of become the company that represents the customers you sell to. So we always have this idea, and it's natural, that you should sell to anyone, right? Look, I'm, I need revenue. It's really tough. Sales is difficult. If I have someone come through the door and they, they're, they're ready to pay me money for a deal, I want to take that business. But then that customer, if they're not a good fit for you, a couple of things happen. First of all, worst case, they take up a lot of your time, they consume a lot of resources, they become a problem, and then they leave anyway. And so their value as an asset is very, very low. But it could even be worse than that. They could start redirecting you. They could say, well, 
for us to be successful, you need to change your product strategy because you're going the wrong way. And so you find yourself being pulled apart by conflicting requirements. And difficult though it is, and I don't trivialize this at all, you have to think in terms of uh, you are as much responsible for choosing customers as they are for choosing you. And especially, I think, as a company's growing, be careful who you choose because you can easily dig yourself into a big hole with the wrong kinds of customers. Um, and that's, that's a really difficult discipline. I don't diminish it. I mean, I'm not saying that I ever 100% execute that. I'm not you know, holier than thou about it. But it's really the ideal way is to be selective. So a lot to unpack there, right? So <clears throat> it's funny you brought up Snowflake because um, one of the things that we did and in, in when I was creating a go-to-market motion for our business unit is um, we applied what I later found out, and this is before Snowflake, so I'm going to take 100% credit for it, right? Totally my original thought. I'm just kidding. Um, I'm sure it happened somewhere on earth before, but... Basically, um, we kept looking at our, our five fastest deals, our five biggest deals, and then our five biggest losses, right? And down all the way down to the trigger event, the psychographics, and it, it allowed us and enabled us to double our deal size, like repeatedly to the point where over a five-year period, we 100x'd our largest deal size. Um, that's without scaling any team or, or a, a lot of things like that. And what we found out is Snowflake does the same thing repeatedly, but they do a 50 by 50 method because they were adding so many customers. So it's really interesting to hear that they grew 200% without adding a single customer. I didn't know their NRR was that high. I thought it was more like 160. Maybe that's they, now. It dropped down to 160 okay. uh, after the public offering. Okay. So, so, so it did come off that curve just from a spectacular early number oh, yeah. to oh. a just amazing Midlife number. Oh yeah, I mean, dude. I mean, I, I, even on the chart I looked at of the highest rated public companies, it, they had the highest by far highest valuation because of that number. So, so that's really interesting. So, um, so how does somebody do that, right? Like, because you're looking at the data in terms of net promoter score, and I'm sure the direct correlation is NRR, like. Net reoccurring revenue, if for those of, of you that don't know what we're talking about, basically it's it's the additional revenue that you get on top of um, when you take out churn. So if, if your retention is 90%, but you're adding 30% of revenue, then your NR would be 120%, right? So that's right. just a quick, quick synopsis of it. So how, how, how do they do that, right? Like, how do they make that a reality? Right. And what's what are you seeing on the MPS data side, net promoter score data? Right. So, so here's how I'd frame this. What, what every company needs to understand is that it's from a customer perspective, there are a whole series of experiences that accumulate for, to a customer making a decision whether or not they want to expand, contract, or, or, or disappear completely from, uh, from a vendor relationship. And those, those experiences start very early in the cycle. They start with the expectations that are established in marketing with the way in which they're sold to, early life experiences they have when it comes to onboarding, technical configuration. I know some companies have very simple processes and others have much more complex, but that's a reconciliation of expectations process. And then they move into a sort of midlife experience where they consume the product, they find the product easy to use, difficult to use, they engage technical support, they engage customer success, 
So think of this as a continuous stream of activities that a customer is consuming. And all of those activities are in some way impacting their static level of loyalty to that company. They may start very excited. Experiences might take some of that enthusiasm away. They might start to propel it upwards. So the customer's in a constant state of sort of revising their, their, their feelings about the company. What every company needs to know intrinsically is a couple of things. Number one, out of all of those things that you're doing, what are the very high impact elements? Because not everything is uniform by a long way. Mm -hmm. and let me give you a good example. People tend to obsess about technical support. Well, technical support actually, from a customer perspective, is something you'd call a hygiene factor, which means that once it's good enough, customers don't want it to be any better. In fact, what customers really don't want is technical support at all. They'd rather have products that work better. Have the damn product work, right? The first time. Right, exactly. So, so over-investing downstream is like having a bunch of people in your company with flamethrowers starting fires upstream and, and investing in more firefighters to put out the fires, right? You're, you're missing the point. So you need to know what it is that's creating those experiences that's, that's resulting in customer status. And then you need to know what good enough performance is. So let me give you another example. Let's say that you're a manufacturer and you quickly recognize that one of the most important things is whether or not you ship the product to a customer on time. Well, that's identifying a factor that might have very material impact relative to, say, oh, I don't know, order processing speed. And it's, it's measuring it correctly. So the customer cares about from order placement to delivery. They don't care about the cycle in the factory. That doesn't mean anything to them. And it's calibrating performance. You know, when I was in the PC industry, delivering a product in two weeks was considered good performance. Today, because of Amazon, thank you, Jeff, delivering anything in less than 48 hours is ridiculous. It's kind of what were you doing? Did you take a detour? <laughs> so calibration as well. So think of every company as sort of building a formula for success. We do these things really well across the entire journey. And really well means this level of performance. And once I've dialed that in, now I can execute well. Um, and one final thing I'd say on that, Ryan, because it's a classic mistake, solving problems downstream, customer success investments, technical support investments, account management investments, are usually the least efficient compared to solving problems upstream. Thoughtful marketing, good customer fit, correct contract negotiation, proper onboarding, correct implementation. So companies tend to throw money at the wrong end of the spectrum and not fix the problems before they even start. I totally agree with you. I see people throw, I, I mean, I see companies throwing people at the problems all the time where it's just like, you realize you're trying to hire three people, whereas if you, like, for example, with some of the stuff I do, you just nail the targeting exactly. Like, you could... You can you can get double that output without going through the higher the capital, uh, the, all that. Right. I, I remember once a, a very wise venture capitalist told me, "Think of hiring as a failure. What you're basically admitting to yourself when you hire is you couldn't find a better solution to the problem than throwing humans at it." And I thought that's a, you know, now look, no one's going to suggest you're going to build a company. Although you certainly had experience scaling a company with small teams. 
in reality, yes, people are important. We need to build teams. We need to scale up. But I think that we're too quick to reach for the, you know, oh, more people is a good result. We even sort of, you know, how big's your company? Oh, well, we have 50 or 100 people. I mean, that's not really a useful way of thinking about it, right? Um, so I think we, we too get locked on people as solutions to problems as opposed to looking for the underlying cause. And look, in the software industry, um, you know, a lot of issues come from fundamental sales and marketing tactics and from product development issues. And, you know, running around throwing people at solving them downstream is very inefficient. Wow. I could talk to you about this for another couple of hours, but unfortunately we don't have that time. So <laughs> um, what would you say, Richard, just to shift gears a little bit, what's your single biggest problem that you're running into right now as you're hitting that million dollar mark in terms of growing the company? I, I would say that the, the, the biggest challenge today is getting that critical meeting with the right prospect. So, you know, we're an enterprise-orientated company, which means that we're dealing with senior people who are effectively our buyer, right? We're not, we're not selling, you know, a $5,000 product where put it up on a website, get a conversation going with someone with limited budgets and, you know, BDR reaches out, they might even answer the phone. We're dealing with getting to senior leaders in companies uh, who are, frankly, not keen to be reached by anyone trying to sell them something, right? And they respond in different ways. They respond to connections they know. They respond to um, introductions. And so getting that one-on-one -on -one meeting with the right person in the right corporation, I would say is by far the biggest sales and marketing challenge. I think downstream in some ways, uh, it's keeping our team flexible. You know, what we don't want to do, especially I think early stage, is in many ways overcode our solution, right? Lock too much in and discover new things which reduce our flexibility. So I think you wanna, you always wanna go about this thinking that your best idea could be a terrible idea, right? You run it up a flagpole, you build a prototype and customers are telling you, no, that's not interesting. You don't want to get too locked into those ideas. You want to stay agile as long as you can, because, you know, I, I realized that when I was running bigger organizations, you have an engineering team of 200 people. It's very hard to change direction. So you, you want to make sure before you start to lock in too much on the technology stack that you've, you've really cracked the code. But I, I, I still think, uh, Ryan, like everything in sales and marketing, getting that magic connection to the right person in the right context is the biggest challenge. Do you, is there, so is the perfect person for you to talk to? Is it the chief revenue officer, the head of customer success, the CEO? What, who's, who's your perfect person to talk to? Yes, yes, and yes. I, I mean, <laughs> I, I, interesting enough, and this is not ideal, right? I'd love to tell you, you know, good old days, oh, we sell to the CIO. Someone's got a badge on them telling, I am your customer, right? <laughs> these, were, these were easy days. I mean, I, I think of it defined this way. I'm looking for somebody who is ultimately responsible for that element of financial performance. Let's call it net revenue retention. So they, they need to make net revenue retention work. That makes them a motivated buyer to have a conversation about getting better at that. That often shows up as... Uh, a CRO, it sometimes shows up as a head of customer success who might own a dollarized version of that, um, might be a general manager of a business unit in a larger company. 
but that they are consistent in that they have a high degree of accountability for that financial outcome. Okay. That makes sense. That's what I would suspect. Okay. So we're going to do a quick founder fire because we're up on just about up on time. So real quick, you know, who's the number one CEO or founder right now that you think is absolutely doing amazing work that you like to emulate? Um, okay. I didn't expect that question. So <laughs> I'm, <laughs> I'm kind of, I'm kind of, I'm kind of a little bit thrown by it. I, I, I think that, um, uh, I think most of the, most of the guys that I, I really like tend, you know, fall into the category of un- unknowns because they're working on their next generation of product. One guy I, I, I respected from my last field a lot was Ryan Smith, who built Qualtrics. Mm-hmm. And Qualtrics, he grew that business to, I want to say, 80 million without raising capital. And, and that's just a staggeringly uh, great accomplishment. And so in some ways, he reminded me very much of Michael Dell when I worked for Michael Dell in the 90s. You know, during the 90s, Michael Dell was that guy. And mm-hmm. Michael is an amazing businessman. Um, and in some ways, Ryan is that next generation of similar entrepreneur who's doing amazing things. That's awesome. Well, maybe I should target him and get him on the show. I don't know. We, we got to go. Well, I mean, you certainly should. I mean, Qualtrics is a billion revenue or something now. So they've really um, they really delivered on it. <laughs> yeah, I'd say so. So, OK. Um, what's your favorite book you've read? Um, it's a science fiction book. I like reading um, uh, the culture series from Ian Banks. So I like hard science fiction. Okay. I try not to read much business, I'm afraid. it's Wow. That's crazy. Kind of boring. Okay. That surprises me with how, I mean, you got, you got, but maybe that's where your creativity comes from. You got some, some great sound bites that you drop. I, I'm trying to type them all out and I probably missed them. Got to re-listen to some of them. Well, I, I read a lot of articles and I read a lot of short form, but books, uh, you know, having written a book as well myself and, you know, I'd never recommend anyone to try and read a book cover to cover. They're just o- overextended versions of a few core concepts. There's always a shorter form. <laughs> it's true. It's true. Um, and then like, where do you see the future of tech going over the next three to five years? The future of tech. Tech. Oh, I think there's two plausible scenarios. I think, first of all, um, you know, from a purely financial perspective, we could see a lot of uh, a lot of recession pull from the higher valuation companies that are overcapitalized, and that could ripple through the funding markets. Right now, late stage growth funds are under a lot of pressure. And that could change the way in which we think about building companies. It hasn't hit early stage investment yet, but it could change things. If I think about products and technologies, um, you know, I think there are a few really, really exciting areas. I think business SaaS is far from tapped out. Most large companies have an aging technology stack that they are still bringing up to standard. I think we are moving beyond core applications. How do I do payroll? How do I do basic MRP? And we're moving into data. And how do I make use of data? Because most companies have very poorly organized data. They have multiple systems it resides in. They can't get intelligence out of their data. So there'll obviously be a lot of technologies driving driving that, ranging from CDP platforms, you know, da- data warehousing, to, which are core infrastructure capabilities. But I think analytics and better insight into data companies have is going to be a growth area. And then, of course, there's areas for which I know very little, blockchain, et cetera. I'm, I'm an investor in Africa. Uh, I'm an investor in a great startup called Ajua, which is based out of uh, Nairobi. 
And I can tell you there's some really exciting things going on in mobility in developing countries like Africa. It's a completely different tech universe. And there's some really amazing transformative things going on with mobile money, for example, mm -hmm. in sub-Saharan Africa. So there's, you know, in many ways, that changes people's lives, Ryan, a lot more than the work we all do. Yeah. I mean, people's lives are truly transformed. Yeah, that's, uh, I mean, that's that's a great call out there. And a lot, of, a lot of people don't, I don't think about it a lot, but it's, it's a really great call out. So, um, okay, so where can people find you? Where can they learn more about OCX Cognition? Well, there's the website. Uh, it's a bit old fashioned. Uh, people don't go to websites as much. LinkedIn's the easiest way. So Richard Owen, I'm right there. And um, I really enjoy any form of conversation on LinkedIn. You know, I tend to get sucked into those conversations um, because I think it's a great way to connect with people and exchange ideas. So please reach out. Yeah, it was. So it was awesome having you on the show. Dropped tons of great insight. Was blown away by some of the concepts that you talked about. So thanks for being on, Richard. You're most welcome. All right. We'll see you on the next episode. Thank you for checking out The Scale Up Show. My mission in life is to help founders and revenue leaders avoid all the pain and suffering in revenue growth so they can flip it and create a life of their own design. So if you enjoyed this show, please like, review, share it on social, and more importantly, just share it with a friend. Share it with someone that you think could learn and benefit from what you heard on today. But the more we get the message out, the more people we could help, the bigger the impact we make, and the bigger the community gets, which helps everybody. So once again, thank you for being a loyal listener. I appreciate you and look forward to seeing you on the next episode.